It's good to see you all. Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we just love you and praise you. Lord, we just pray for your leadership and guidance. Lord, just speak to us tonight. Lord, let us just step out of the way and let your Holy Spirit just move and speak through us and speak to us. Lord, give us ears to hear. Lord, give us eyes to see. Lord, give us a heart to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, it's good to be here tonight. I'm uh, glad to see you guys. We're going to jump right into the uh, slides if it's okay because I, I want to make sure we make best use of our uh, uh, time if we possibly can. Uh, I know I had it started out earlier with a cool picture of the Maasai guys, but uh, I added a picture here because I wanted to add some ladies to you. What I wanted to show you here is, is that we talked a lot about discipleship in the last two days. And I, I was joking with Tim uh, the other day that, you know, all the, and I think I mentioned it here, you know, I'm always getting opportunities for an app for my phone to make disciples. And everybody's always wanting to give me a book. Uh, here's a book by a guy. He's a disciple maker. Read this guy's book. And, and, you know, I've been around long enough now to where I've kind of figured these things out. And I told somebody one time, I said, listen, I'll be glad to read the guy's book, but I just have a, just this crazy question. And they said, what's that? And I said, does this guy actually have a disciple? You see, Jesus not only made disciples, but he could actually tell you their names because they were real people and they knew they were being discipled and he knew they were discipling them. You see, it wasn't a mystery. Discipleship isn't just something that he was like, that's what he called when he was teaching, or that's when he called when he, what he called it when he led Sunday school class, or that's when he called what he called it when he preached. He didn't call that discipling. He actually had men that he said, come and be my disciple. Come and follow me. Okay. And Paul said this crazy thing one time in the Bible. And I know you've read it and I know you've thought Paul was crazy too. And Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Over and over again, he said, follow my example and men like me as I follow Christ. He told them to follow Timothy, that Timothy was a good example one time. And he asked them a question about Titus. He says, was he not a good example among you? In fact, one of the weirdest things about it, and I always thought, man, what an egotist Paul was. Follow me as I follow Christ. But actually, that's what discipleship is. You know, there's an old saying that I heard when I was a kid one time. You know, there was a, uh, a, a really a great man of God was teaching. He said, you know, all of his life, he said, uh, following men and trying to uh, uh, learn about Jesus was a little bit like a story he had heard growing up when you're looking for directions. You know, you'd be driving around in the country and you'd pull up and you'd say, hey, man, can you tell me how to get to so-and-so? And they go, oh, yeah, you go down this road and you turn right and, and uh, you'll see a maple tree and you go left and you go for five miles, you hit the highway, you follow down, you branch off to the right and it'll take you right where you want to go. And he said he'd get out and he'd ride around and man, 30 minutes later, he's worse lost than he was before. So he pulled over to somewhere else and they said, oh yeah, it's no trouble at all. You know, you go down this road, you turn this way and they'd give him some elaborate directions. He'd drive around in another 30 minutes and, and he was still lost. And finally, one day, he said he, he said he pulled over and he says, man, I'm trying to find my way to so-and-so. Can you tell me how to get there? And the guy said, sure, follow me. And he took him there. How many of you know that time he made it to where he was going? Because, see, that guy not only knew the way, but he was going there also. 
And see, that's what we're called to do in discipleship. There's people writing books and making apps, and they know the way, but they're not going there. So if you follow them, you're following a guy that writes books about making disciples, or you're following a guy that's really good about making apps, and he's chosen as his topic this time, making disciples. And for $49.99, you can make disciples too. Just give me your credit card number and your expiration date, and I too will make you, uh, send you a disciple app. That's actually what they do. And so I came up with this concept. Before I'm going to take anybody's book and read about discipleship or subscribe to any app on making disciples, I want to know who this guy's disciples are. Because you see, people that made disciples in the Bible could actually tell you who the disciples are. So what I'll tell you is, I know this is a crazy concept, but I'm, not, I'm really, and I tell people this all the time, I am nothing special, I do nothing unique, but I have this crazy idea about discipleship. Is the guy that died on the cross is the only expert I've ever met on making disciples he came and set us an example. The book of Hebrews says he was the exact representation of the Father. He was the radiance of his glory. Jesus said, I got my teachings directly from the Father and will be judged by them on judgment day. So I have this crazy idea. Now hear me out. I know this sounds crazy. Is that we actually do what Jesus said do to me. How about that for a concept? How about if what we did was is did what Jesus modeled instead of coming up with these great ideas on how to make disciples? What if instead of trying to come up and reinvent the wheel that we actually follow Jesus and his example? So I'm going to I talk to you a little bit about making disciples and I talk to you about what we do as far as uh, Luke 10, where we go out two by two. So I wanted to do something really weird because I've never seen anybody do this. These guys go out two by two. They're not a theory. It's not an app. Trust me. These guys go out and, you know, and, and I can go across the room there. You know, I can say there's Asif, there's Malin, there's Hatibu, there's, there's Ali, there's Rahil, there's, and you just go down the list. These are real guys. They actually know their disciples, and their actual intention is going out and calling men to make disciples. They're not an app. And it took me 10 years to get these guys together. It's really hard, and it's not easy doing this. But this is what happens when you actually do what Jesus said. So these guys actually go out two by two and actually ask people if they want to hear about the kingdom of God and Jesus. They say the reason that men should repent is because the kingdom of God is available, which just happens to be what Jesus said. You can go to the next slide. Uh I thought we had the women up next. Are they not? Are they later? Soon? No, no, no. It doesn't matter. Oh, I just wanted to show you the men disciples, and I've shared it with you guys this over and over again, but we're very gender separate. And so I felt like I was going around the country. I kept showing my guys, and I said, I never show the gals. And so I wanted to show you that we also have women that are trained. Now, on the right-hand side, my right hand as I'm facing them, that's Conwal. That's Asif's wife. Her, she came from Islam in uh, uh, Pakistan. Her family had to flee there because of persecution. Her mother-in-law was 
thrown in prison for leading women to Christ. Uh, her and her mother-in-law ran a clinic. Uh, they're both midwives, as a matter of fact. And they were leading so many Muslim women to uh, Christ, they threw the mother in prison. Another brother, not me, uh, helped them escape from Pakistan, got them to, t- to, tal- uh, got them to uh, uh, Tanzania. And then I met them, and it turns out that the, uh, the brother that brought them from Pakistan, it got them hooked up into one of these uh, prosperity gospel uh, preachers. We're full of them in Africa. You know, we're just, uh, the particular guy they hooked him up, he's, he's really was a very helpful guy. He was so kind to us. He helped us get visas. He did all kinds of great things. But he also has two jets, four helicopters, and about 14 businesses. And it's all, and, and all of his sermons are you can get rich with Jesus too, just like me. So when they came over, they were really unhappy with the get rich with Jesus scheme. And so we went up and I, uh, I began to teach them about being a disciple of Jesus. They decided to do that. I moved their family of nine and I moved them in my house in Tanzania. And uh, at this point, I actually lived in a house, probably not unlike yours, for about two years. I lived with them for a year and then gave it to them. And they lived in Arusha there and took care of their family for quite some time. The lady next to her there in the blue, her name uh, is Eunice. Her husband was my right-hand man, Wilson. He died at 42 uh, in Kenya, and she now has come down and works for me too. That's a schoolhouse behind him, and she lives in the back corner over there. I put her little apartment in. And then that's Catherine, and Catherine uh, is, teaches our adult literacy classes. Most women over 40 are illiterate because they were never sent to school. So we're teaching them how to read so they can share their faith. And so anyway, I just wanted to show you that we have women teams that go out two by two, and our men share with the men, and the women share with the women. We empower women to take the gospel to women. Because with gender separate, it's, it would be inappropriate in our country for our brother to go share or counsel with women. It's not done. So in his case, if his, if his wife is a faithful sister, she would do all the ministering and counseling to the women, and he would do to the men, and then, of course, he would speak in the church service and all. So women have a very big role. I believe this is very biblical. You will notice in the Bible, one of the strangest passages that we don't talk about is that Paul's going through one time and he's talking about the qualifications for office and he gets to widow. And it's the strangest verse because her qualifications are greater than the deacon and about the same as the bishop. And he goes through all of these things in order for her to receive or to be put on the what Paul calls the list. And what we know now from ancient history is they divided up the offering. Each leader in the church pretty much lived on a widow's portion. And that's why what Paul meant when he said those are the great at preaching and teaching, they should get a double portion. And your widow's got barely enough to stay alive, so the preacher got two times barely enough to stay alive. I always hope you had a small family there. But, but, the, but in order to be a widow, uh, there was huge qualifications because widow was an official position. It wasn't just a woman that lost her husband. It was an official position, and that's the reason that Paul lists them with deacons, elders, bishops, and then has Wittes stuck in there. If you'll go back, David Berceau actually uh, did an entire teaching on 
the, the way they kind of lived like we did in the early church. They were very gender separate in many ways. And so they had women, Paul mentions Phoebe, sending her out and doing different things with them. A lot of people believe Phoebe was kind of in charge of the widows for Paul, and he would send her around and do her thing. They didn't lead men, but by golly, they were like the leaders among the women. And if you're like in our culture where literally 30 or 40% of the women over 40 years old really over 35 years old, or already the widows are abandoned. It's a huge ministry there. And when it's inappropriate for men to minister to them, then you, somebody's got to do it. And so we, needed, we need godly women that have been raised up and trained to do that. These women make disciples of other women. You can go to the next slide. Uh, I wanted to show you, too, we worked some real primitive tribes. This is actually a Maasai family. This guy watches my goats. I'm going to show you a little more about my goats as I go forward. But this is him and his wife. Now, how primitive is a primitive tribe? Now, you're not going to believe this, but I, I have to tell you just so you understand. Right behind him is the bathroom. It, we call it a cho. It's an outhouse, as some of us may know in the room. And this guy spent his whole life, growing up since he was a little boy, following herds of cows and goats around. So that's what he did. So I hired him. He's watching after my goats. And I should have known something was up. But anyway, I walked around. I showed him, you know, on this side of the show, we go to the bathroom. There's a little hole there with a little porcelain ring around it. That's about it. It's basically an old school outhouse. And then I showed him the other side. And I said, there's a bucket you can put water in and bathe in. That's how we bathe over there. We just bathe in a bucket. And then uh, I brought him in the house, and this should have been the dead giveaway. He come in the house with me, and I said, and here's the veterinarian medicine. You know, you can, you know, you can give shots, and these are vitamins, and these are the different vaccines we give him. And he'd done that before, and he knew all about it. And I said, well, okay, well, uh, you can go ahead about your duties. I'll be out in a little while and check you. And I go over to my sit-down, and I start doing something. I look over, and he had walked over to the door. And we'd come in the door. Oh, is this someone? I thought that was someone's phone. It's a plug. So we had come in the door, and the door had shut. And so he walks back over to the door, and he walks over to it, and he looks at it, and he goes. And he turns around and looks over the shoulder at me, and I realized he had never opened the door. Now, I've been in Maasai country, and I, I saw that they had just a piece of cloth over the door and windows, but it never occurred to me that he had never turned the doorknob. So I went over and turned the doorknob. Now, that should have let me know that there may be problems in the future about the other things that I showed him. So the next day we get up, and all the men are yelling and screaming outside, and they're all getting on him. His name's Barack, by the way, which means blessing. And they're yelling at Barack, and I'm saying, hey, guys, he's a new brother. He just came. What are, what are y'all doing? They said, look what he did, and they opened the door, and Barack had gone into where you go to the bathroom, and he just pooped in the middle of the floor. And I said, Barack, I, I showed you where to go to the bathroom yesterday. Why, did, why don't you go to the bathroom in the hole? And he looked at me and goes, in the hole? If you go to the bathroom in the hole, you're going to never get that thing out of there. I said, well, that's true, Barack. But that's the whole point. And he says, well, how are you going to clean it up if it's down there? And I said, well, we don't. We leave it down there. And he just thought that was about the dumbest idea he ever had. You know, for them, they'd covered up with dirt. In fact, this whole idea of pooping on the floor in this tile room made no sense to him whatsoever, but this was his frame of reference. So we deal with some pretty primitive tribes, and uh, he thought we were pretty uncivilized with this whole pooping on the floor thing. So you can might imagine from his perspective. But anyway, he's learned. 
And then, you know, explaining the whole toilet paper thing is, was out there, too, because nobody uses toilet paper. Go ahead. Uh, this is, this is Kunwal with her husband, Asif, and their children. And I told you their story about fleeing Pakistan. Asif actually keeps my books. He's my computer guru. Uh, he takes care of our website and things like that when I'm in uh, there. And he's also an excellent disciple maker. But he's kind of a quiet guy, real laid back, real humble and gracious. His wife is, is a midwife. She's a very strong person among the ladies, super intelligent. No telling how smart both of them are. They're very gifted. Go to the next one. And this is their brother, Rahil. Rahil is Mr. Personality. He is an incredible evangelist. His wife's name's Kunwal. Uh, and that's her little boy, Josiah. Rahil is so gifted. He's actually moved out of the country area from where I lived at. And he now lives in the nearest town to us called Arusha because he's so gifted that he has now planted a house church of former Muslims, a house church of former people from the Sikh community, and a house church of former people from the Islam, uh, I'm sorry, from the, uh, I'll get it out in a minute, from the Hindu culture. And so he's got all three of these groups, and he's very gifted, and uh, he's also very gifted in language. All of them speak a little bit of Arabic. They speak uh, Urdu, uh, a little bit of Farsi, English, and Swahili, uh, which is very typical. I just want to show you one picture. I talked to you guys about working with radical Islam in Kenya. Uh, I had written a story, and this was the cover shot for it. These are all Somalis here. And uh, you see all the sisters there in burqa. I actually wrote a story called My Sister Wears a Burqa. It didn't get the, the punch I was hoping for in America because a lot of people, it's so foreign to them and they're so freaked out by women having to wear a burqa. We look at it as oppression and everything. We love it in the kingdom community because women wear the burqa and nobody can identify them so they can slip in and out of house church meetings in incognito. No one can ever find them out. They're much less at risk of being persecuted than the men are. And so um, I just thought I would include that picture there. That's actually in a little apartment that I had outside the slums in Nairobi. Uh, I kept my, I, I lived on my farm in Tanzania, but I spent a lot of times in Kenya working with refugees during that time. Uh, the Somalis, of course, we all know the trouble that was going on in Somalia. The Sudanese Civil War was going on at the same time. In Ethiopia, the Communist Party had run the Oromo tribe out of the area. There was a civil war in Etria, and uh, there's one more I'm missing. doesn't matter. But anyway, there was a lot of things going on in a lot of countries, and we were just loaded with refugees from these countries that had radical Islam in them, and we were just leading them to Jesus right and left and planting house churches. And so I had a group of Somalis, and this is them coming over to my house to have house church. And uh, these are the ladies in their burqas, and these two men were really evangelists that had come to know Jesus. The one uh, kind of in the middle right there in the brown T-shirt, he had actually been an imam. He actually came to know Christ praying in a mosque, asking God to reveal himself. He asked that God would send somebody, uh, if Jesus was real, for God to send somebody and bring him a Bible, and they did. And, uh, and he literally went in the mosque, and they had in his particular sect, they would build a tent, and you would seek God in a tent, uh, and you would have to rely on people to bring you water, bring you food. You wouldn't come out until God answered you. And what they didn't know was he was in the middle of the mosque, and he was reading the Bible. And, uh, and he believed Christ was revealed to him at that point, and he left Islam and came out. So uh, he actually believes he came to Jesus in a mosque uh, in Ethiopia, uh, in Allah's house seeking Jesus. And so that was his testimony. You can go to the next one. 
a course in the course of calling people to repentance, we baptize. I just thought I'd show you a picture of somebody being baptized. That's Moody and Rahil baptizing them. I baptize sometimes, but you know, uh, Jesus didn't baptize anybody, and you know, he's always let the disciples do it. Part of discipleship is passing on the responsibilities that we think of as just only preachers do it or only ministers do it. So we train all of our guys when they reach a certain point, they got to learn to baptize people as well. Go to the next one. Uh, we do a big witness ministry. I'm going to tell you very quickly about it. In our culture, the uh, mentally retarded, the disabled, and widows have absolutely no status. Uh, once a um, once a man dies, uh, it's not like they throw him out right away, but very soon uh, the economic realities weigh very heavy. The oldest son inherits everything, and everybody has to basically, basically satiate him in order to get any of the good graces or receive any kind of an inheritance or anything. And mom's in the way. A lot of times if the father uh, was an affluent family, mom's still living in the big house, as it were. If you can imagine in, in America, you know, Papa and Mama had the big house because they homesteaded the place, and Mom and Dad had a little smaller house, and the grandkids a little smaller. So what happens in the hierarchy of things, Papa's dead now. We call a grandfather Babu, which is what everyone calls me over in Africa. He's gone, and now Bibi's there. That's grandmother. And Bibi has no status. In fact, her house now belongs to the oldest son. He's got a wife and eight kids, and she's in there by himself. She's coming out. It's time to... Everybody to shift up a position, and there's nowhere for B.B. to go. So what happens is, in a godly and good place, B.B., of course, moves in with one of her son or daughter-in-laws, and is taken care of to a ripe old age. In the rest of the 90% of the society, she's cast aside like a corn husk. I have literally found widows living under a piece of plastic because their family sold their house, their land, and everything cashed out and they all moved somewhere else and left grandma behind. I literally find that happen. So we have hundreds of widows. So once a month, what you're seeing here is we bring in about 200 widows once a month, and we provide food for them like we would give them uh, uh, corn, cooking oil, salt, tea, uh, maybe eggs, not often to this group. This is too big. Uh, and basically staples they need, sugar, tea, things like this for them. And we provide that for them and preach the gospel to them. You can go to the next slide. Uh, these are just two of the widows. Now, look behind them. This is a traditional house. This is made of concrete and cow manure. And uh, what we do is we, we actually stick these sticks in the ground. We paint the sticks with, with uh, used mortar oil because then the insects won't eat them. And then we, uh, we fill, we make a, like a box out of these sticks all the way around where the walls are at. And then we put rocks in there. And then we take uh, cow manure and mud and we mix it together. And then you hand pack it in. And then you come to the outside and you kind of smooth it and give it that stucco look. And as you see, after years, the, the, the sticks begin to show through the walls. These people actually have bars on the windows, but there's no glass or anything there. And that's their house. This is Mama Melisa and her mother. And uh, you're going to see her in some other pictures. Go ahead to the next slide. Uh, this is a house that we found uh, uh, some widows in with four children. This is uh, not typical. This is a pretty rough one here. But this just shows you what can happen. You see all the bricks there. They actually, uh, in Africa, this, we go through generations of not being able to trust our banks. So when you get some extra money, you got a problem. Because in our culture, you're not allowed to tell someone no genuinely in need. 
So I know this sounds dumb, but so what you have to do is spend the money as fast as you can if you ever have a windfall. And since you can't trust the bank, what you do is you spend the money on building materials so you can build a house someday. So what happened here is the relatives had built had bought a bunch of bricks but had no money to finish the house. And, uh, and she'd built in the area where they were going to build a house because they did, the family did own the land. Of course, nobody cared about her living there because they hadn't built their house yet. So she's able to kind of just live there. And as you can see, it's just sticks, wood, and plastic and living there with three children. Go ahead. Our life expectancy is 52 years, so we have a lot of very young widows and a lot of abandoned women as well. Uh, this is actually a Maasai house. This one is a traditional roundhouse made of cow manure and, and cement with a thatch roof. That tree next to it is a baba tree or mbuyu. And uh, uh, those, those funny-looking things up in the tree are actually uh, bird's nest, and they're the ones like little bags where the birds fly out of the bottom. We love those everywhere they go because they eat their weight in uh, Mosquitoes much like a bat would. You can go to the next picture. I'm just showing you some of the ways we live. Now, this is where the well-to-do Messiah lived. You notice their houses are square, and they have 10 roofs. You can go to the next one. This is Kia. This is where our airport is, by the way. This is where I fly in and out of. And then this is an example of a guy. He's uh, actually beating the uh, thatch to go on the roof to get all the insects out of it before he puts it up on the roof. I was actually sitting in a house church and looking out. You see the cattle in the background. These are still kind of herder kind of guys. This was obviously the dry season. And uh, this is just a guy repairing a house. That's, that's a roofing contractor uh, in Africa, by the way. Go to the next one. Uh, this is just another widow's house. Now, I want you to pay attention to this house. This is the, this is the way I live. When I first went to Africa, I lived in a house just like this, but it had a door on each side instead of one door, and it was a goat stall, and you notice how the boards don't go together, and the roof doesn't actually connect to the walls and everything, and so what had happened was it was a family that had moved there, and uh, the babu or grandfather, the patriarch of the family, had allowed us to live there, and uh, I lived on one side, and they lived on the other side. I told you about that the other day. I slept in a little child's single bed with a, with a grown man, and they slept on the other side in a kind of a regular double bed, we would just say, traditional, with a husband and wife. And I can't remember it was four or five children, and uh, not potty-trained children either, I would point out, which was a real education for me as well. So, and uh, this is actually the house I bought. This was the, where my bedroom is now before. Now I took all that junk off the wall and put fresh cardboard up. So it looks much better now. But I just want to give you an idea of what it looks like. This is actually my house from the front. You notice they had taken uh, wooden strips and run them uh, laterally there to cover up all the, the spaces between the board. And uh, so that's just a picture of me and the Shaquille family. We went out the first day after we closed on the house so we could take a look at it. We made a lot of improvements since then. It's not as, as rough as it used to be. You can go to the next one. Uh, this is my backyard in, back in the day. Uh, it's very different now. I don't have animals right up next to the house anymore. But that was it. I want you to take a look. I, I, I love this picture. See that wooden wheelbarrow right there? Fred Flintstone's got nothing on me. I have wooden wheelbarrows with wooden wheels, and they work, and they're really good. In fact, I bought probably three metal wheelbarrows that have been worn out, and uh, I've only worn out one of these guys. So they, they last a long time, and I love them, but I'm telling you, I look like Fred Flintstone walking across the ground. You can go to the next one. Uh, we do a goat program. We actually raise goats and give away to widows. Most of our goats are, excuse me. That's a terrible thing. Most of our widows, not our goats. 
Most of our widows, of course, uh, grew up in an agrarian society, so they all know how to farm. So the best way you can help them is helping them with farm skills. So we give away goats, which is a source of milk protein. We try to give away a pregnant goat. Uh, I keep anywhere from 27 to 47, and we try to give them away just constantly, and we're breeding them all the time, too. That's why I had that in my side earlier, because we're always breeding goats and everything in order to give away. I tried to name the program Goats for Grannies, and believe it or not, there was an NGO already called that, and so I have no name for my goat, my, my goat program. We also, I had up to 2,000 chickens this last year. Chickens kind of cycle out at two and a half years. You know, they peak out as far as the number of legs, eggs they lay. And so what you see here, And so what you see here is that we had a bunch of chickens age out. And what that means is they're not laying like an egg every day or every other day. And once they stop doing that, then it's not really worth feeding them. You can throw them in the yard and free range them. They'll still lay 10 eggs a month. But it's not economically feasible to give them feed anymore. So we just give them to the widows. Actually, that lady there has got about five or six birds, which is about two months' wages if she just chose to sell them. So it's, you know, that's, this was a huge windfall for her. Or she can go home and just throw them in the yard and, uh, and free range them, and it'll provide protein for for another two or three years. Great source of protein. You know, it's nothing better than chicken eggs. Anyway, I was up to 2,000 of them. I had somebody just steal 400 chickens from me. I'm towed slowly, just a few at a time. So anyway, I ordered 1,000 the day before yesterday, so six months from now, I'll be back in super egg production. But I, I can live on, you know, 100 eggs a day. All right, and we actually make bricks. And uh, this is a machine we found that somebody else knew how, that was using it. And we buy our own rocks and our own sand. And, uh, and if you can visualize it here, he's holding that arm, which where you push it down, it raises the brick up. And see that handle on the back? So we put all the sand and there's a little bit of cement mixed in there. And we take that big flat handle metal thing and we bam, 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 and we pack it. And we actually make brick old blocks and uh, we actually set people up in business so they can take care of themselves doing this. It, go to the next slide. And we actually built this building with our blocks. This is a house we built for abandoned widows and also for sick people that uh, needed a longer time to recover and special attention in order to survive. And so we built these five rooms here. These are some of the widows that moved in there and, uh, and are staying there at this time. But we built that right on our farm. Go to the next slide. Uh, we also do wound care. This lady has elephantitis and also mossy foot. I know this looks like, you know, her feet are all rotted off and there's no hope for her, but we absolutely turned her around in about five weeks. It turns out that there's a parasite that gets in the gland and a common malaria medicine actually kills the parasite. And then we taught her husband how to massage the glands behind her knee. And when you do that, it kind of gets everything moving and then your body can can remove those parasites from your system because the malaria medicine killed them and then the rest was just hygiene we uh you know i have a lot thank you so much i have a lot of friends that are doctors here in the states my sending church is in a medical area so most of the people that go to the church i was sent from are either doctors or, or research scientists at saint jude the children's hospital and so as a result i have access to all this stuff so basically they taught me how to do wound care and and then I went over there and taught people how to do wound care. And we go around, and uh, I have five people now that go around, and they literally clean people's feet, wash wounds. Go to the next slide. This is a chemical burn from a, um, 
a plantation, a coffee plantation, and uh, this is the kind of thing that would get infected and kill him. We treat this routinely. I can usually, in a period of, uh, of a month or two, get this guy back to normal. We just add eggs to his diet, a lot of green leafy vegetables, a lot of cleaning and sanitation, and we can actually save this guy's life. He would have died if he hadn't come to us. You can go to the next one. Up, oh, you can go to the next one. Don't have any more. Okay, well, we, we, that's a very short presentation. That's okay. We're going to keep it short. So I just wanted to show you some of the things that we do here. Uh, one of the things I didn't show you, we also have an infirmary. So people come to us and they, um, uh, and when they're sick, you know, we believe in healing. We pray for people to heal and we see people heal. We also have people that come to us and, you know, they were given medicine for three years and they got better and then they couldn't afford the medicine and they come back and they just want somebody to send them the doctor so they can get the medicine again. If what they want is medicine, we just help them get it. We actually uh, are able to go and, and do wholesale purchases of medicine now. And uh, so we're like a pharmacist. So we keep in stock all the normal things that people would need. And uh, so we're able to buy in such volume, like a, like a pharmacy, that, that we save a lot of money that way as far as that goes and everything. So that's just what I wanted to show you as far as sli slides go.